So we've been in a series uh, called Get It Together for the past couple of weeks. Uh, This is week number 10. It's our last week going through 1 Corinthians. And to remind you why we've called it Get It Together and what this is all about is that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in a city called Corinth. And that city in Corinth was very similar to our modern day Los Angeles, New York, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. It was very cosmopolitan. If there was a pleasure that existed in this world, you could find it in Corinth. If there was a new idea that existed in this world, you could find it in Corinth. Corinth was very close to Athens, and everybody knows that Athens was sort of like this mecca of Greek philosophy. Well, Corinth was right around the corner. And so the people who lived in Corinth were always excited about the new things, the new theories, the new doctrines, the new philosophies that were out there, the new religions that were out there, the new ways of worshiping the gods they already knew, all those things. They were fascinated by new stuff. And they were also fascinated by, by uh, teachers who could, who could compel them with good stories or, or great oratory or something along those lines. And so when the Apostle Paul went through Corinth, he brought a brand new idea. A brand new idea that there was a man who was born in the land of Israel. He claimed to be God from on high. He was crucified on a Roman cross, but then three days later he rose from the dead and then proved that he really was who he said he was. And so this man, who was God in the flesh, who died, who rose again, can now provide for every single person forgiveness of sin and a relationship with God. This is a brand new idea. It didn't make any sense to them in Corinth, but because it was so new, they loved it, and a few people jumped on board with it. And they followed it. And Paul began to build a little church there in Corinth. But then what happened after that? He left. He left. He spent a couple years, about a year and a half there, maybe two years there. And then he left. And after he left, new ideas came in. And new people began to come up with new ideas. And they said, okay, well, Paul was good, but he wasn't really a great speaker. And he really needed to work with his own hands because no one thought he was good enough to pay his, his uh, support. And so, you know what? Maybe we should be paying attention to other teachers too. Maybe we should be paying attention to other ideas too. And when Paul hears a report of this, he gets upset And so he writes 1 Corinthians, this letter, to smack the people of Corinth upside the head and tell them they need to get it together. They need to get their act together because they aren't living the way Paul taught them. They aren't living in holiness. They need to get their relationship together because they aren't living in unity. They're divided among each other on all these different aspects, on all these different factions. And then most of all, they need to get themselves back under the lordship of Jesus because Jesus is the one they should be paying attention to, not all this newfangled stuff that's coming in. And so he writes the book of 1 Corinthians to really get them to get their act together. And now we come to the end. It's chapter 16. He's already addressed all the big issues. You see, he learned about their problems when they sent a letter and a delegate to him. So here's Paul. He's living in Ephesus now. And he gets this letter from Corinth, and the letter has these questions in it. Paul, what do you say about this? We got this guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. Um, Paul, we got this uh, situation going on here. We got women who are dressing like men so that they can participate in the worship uh, gatherings. Uh, Paul, what do you think? We've got a bunch of people who are really speaking in tongues a whole lot. Aren't you really proud of us for all that stuff? Paul answers all those questions. They ask him these questions, and then he sees this letter. He's upset with how they're handling some things, but he answers all their questions. 
There are two questions left. Chapter 16, he answers both of them. Question number one, Paul, why did you ask us for money? What's the deal about this money you're trying to collect? And number two, by the way, Paul, um, we know you're in Ephesus right now, and we know Apollos is there in Ephesus. Can you tell Apollos that we want to see him? Can you send him back to us? If you think about it, both of those questions are really personal. You see, the money thing, Paul had a particular project that he'd been working on for a long time. In fact, he probably started the project when he was in Corinth the last time he was with them. And now he's got this project to raise some money for this particular thing. And he's already told them about it. But they're asking him this question that is a little bit contentious. And if I were Paul, I would be like, oh my goodness, you guys, I went through this with you and I would be a little bit upset. But it's that other question that really would have gotten me. You see, they writing a letter to Paul to say to Paul, Paul, we don't want you. We want Apollos. Would you send Apollos back to us? And I tell you what, if I ever get a letter from someone saying, hey, Jeff, would you send that other person to do what you can do to us? I'd take it personally. And here's Paul. These are two personal things that he saves till the end of his letter to address. He says, okay, I'll tackle them. So let's look at them. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're going to look at them. Verse 1, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Pause there. (laughs) See, this is how Paul is answering their question. They ask the question, what about the collection for the Lord's people? And Paul's response is, okay, now about the collection. About the collection for the Lord's people, you should do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Now, you might be wondering, well, what's the deal with this collection? Interestingly enough, Paul doesn't explain the collection here. And because he doesn't explain the collection here, why he's doing the collection, we can conclude that the Corinthians already knew about it. They already knew what it was for. They already knew why Paul was doing it. They were just asking him some detail questions. Paul, are you serious? You're going to come here and you're going to ask us for money. Serious, for this project that you're working on. Are you serious? He doesn't tell them why. He just gives them a couple details of how. But perhaps you have forgotten why, and so I want to take you through that journey. I'm going to take you back to Acts chapter 2 so we can set the stage for the collection Paul is taking. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Jesus died. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He spent some time visiting his followers, proving to them that he was really alive after death. And then he said, now wait in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. And then after Jesus said those words, he levitated off the planet and went into heaven. And the people who were left said, what do we do now? Well, we do what Jesus told us to do. We're going to stay in Jerusalem. We're going to spend time together. We're going to pray until the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit showed up on a day called Pentecost. It was a Jewish feast day. And so the Holy Spirit showed up. He gave them miraculous powers, experiences right there in that moment. And they began to speak languages that sounded like gibberish to themselves, but were interpreted in the hearts of the people who were standing around them. And they understood everything that Peter and James and Paul and and not Paul, Peter and James and John and all these other guys were saying. They understood it. There was this great miracle that was being done where Peter was explaining the word of God and what happened with Jesus in one language 
and all these people were hearing it in their own languages. An amazing thing. And then we find out that 3,000 people gave their hearts to Jesus and were baptized on that day. And you need to remember, they only counted the men. So it wasn't just 3,000. It could have been 6,000. It could have been 10,000, depending on how many children there were. See, these people had brought their families, most likely, to Jerusalem because it was a feast day. And what's fascinating is that we know there were a ton of people, maybe even upwards of 10,000 people, who all joined the church that one particular day. And we also know that these people were not from Jerusalem because it was a feast day. They were in the town for that day, for the feast, but we also know they weren't from anywhere nearby. Do you know how we know that? Because none of them spoke the language as their first language. Yeah, they spoke Aramaic or Greek, whatever they needed to speak when they got to Jerusalem for the business that they were running, but their heart language, their home language was somewhere far away. These people were from far away, and they had gathered together, and they heard the message of Jesus, and their hearts were touched, and they were baptized, and they entered into the fellowship of the church. But i got to ask you a question. If God sent us 10,000 people next week, if he sent us 10,000 people next week, and they just all showed up, and they were from a foreign land, and this was the only church in the world, and they heard the message about Jesus, and they gave their hearts to Jesus, and this was the only church in the world, would you tell them to go home next week? Oh, see, that's the problem. These people only expected to be in there for the feast and then to leave. Come in, celebrate the feast, leave. But now they've just encountered the greatest message they've ever heard, and they're in the only church that exists on the planet, and they're not going to go anywhere. And the Christians who are there are like, what do we do? The disciples, the early church people, they're like, what do we do with 10,000 people? We don't have the financial resources to take care of 10,000 people. So they sell their property. See, here's the, the pro of selling your property is that you get a windfall of cash right then. But the con of selling your property is that for the future, you get zero dollars the rest of your life. See, you, you sold the property, you got the money, you sacrificed your future for the future of this little church. These individual Christians who had come to faith early on, there were only 120 of them. These early Christians who had come to faith early on in response to seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead, these early Christians sacrificed their future for the future of the church. And that's the foundation of what we read next. Acts chapter 4, take a look at this. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And not just normal people. Check it out. Look at, read a little bit farther. We find a guy named Joseph, and it says about Joseph, uh, he's a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, and and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's the first time we meet Barnabas when he sold his property. You see, what's going on here is that realizing that there are all these Christians who need to be nurtured in the faith, 
before they can go home. But in order to nurture them in the faith, they need to make sure they are fed. And so Barnabas and everybody else who has any property at all, they sell the property little by little, one by one, until everything is gone because they are sacrificing their future for the future of the church. And then, in Acts chapter 11, we read this. During this time, some people came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. A new church had started in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are among the founders of this new church up in Antioch. Great things are happening up in Antioch. But what happens is one of them, a prophet named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This actually happened during the reign of Claudius. And the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. See, the church in Antioch heard that the church in Judea might suffer. A famine was coming. The famine hadn't happened yet. A famine was coming. And they heard that the church in Jerusalem might experience this famine more harshly than the rest of them. It was going to hit the entire Roman world according to the prophecy, but the people in Antioch were fine. They were okay. They still had their property, but all the Christians in Judea had liquidated all their assets so they could get the church off the ground. And so the brothers and sisters in Antioch said, well, we need to care for our brothers and sisters in Judea. Let's send some money. Who should we send? Well, Barnabas, he makes perfect sense because he's from there. Barnabas, he makes perfect sense because he's an encouraging guy. He sacrificed his own property. In fact, he's one of the guys that sold his own property there in Judea. Who else do we send? Let's send Saul. Because Saul, this guy that we now know today as Paul, was one of the key speakers in Antioch. He was one of the key leaders of this new movement in Antioch. And so this was old meets new. This was Barnabas meets Saul and the two of them going down to do this project to say, we in Antioch are in solidarity with you in Judea. Keep reading. We find in uh, Galatians chapter 2. Paul talks about that visit that he made to Judea. He says, James, Cephas, Paul's word for Peter, it's just the Aramaic word for rock, and John, those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Here's Paul. He says, listen, there are only two things I care about. One is bringing the message of Jesus to people and two, caring for the poor By the way, all the people in Judea, in Jerusalem, were poor because they had liquidated all of their assets to care for the church. They had impoverished themselves for the sake of the church. And so when they say, please remember the poor, Paul is like, I remember the poor. Everybody knows they're talking about Jerusalem. And Paul says, this is is the second half of my mission. I'm going to bring Jesus to people, and I'm going to care for the poor, especially those in Jerusalem. And so by the time we read Romans 15, one of the last letters Paul writes, by the time we read Romans 15, we see Paul say this. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings. They owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. See, somewhere between Acts chapter 11 and the end 
end of the story, Paul decides he's going to take a second collection. See, Paul goes on a missionary journey with Barnabas, and they plant a lot of churches. Then he goes on another missionary journey with a guy named Silas, and they plant more churches. And it's at the end of that missionary journey that he finds himself in a city called Corinth. And I think it's at that moment that Paul says, you know what? We need to do the collection again. It's been long enough. There are lots more churches. We need to do the collection again. And so he goes throughout Macedonia and Achaia to raise more money from the Corinthians and the other churches. And he finally is ready to take that money to Jerusalem. And so when he writes in Romans, he says, you need to know about the other churches that have given me money to take to Jerusalem. Now, why are we going through all this? It's because the details of Paul's collection show you the heart behind this passage that we are reading today. And they give us an insight into a lesson that I think Paul is trying to teach by this collection. I'll give you the lesson in my words because Paul doesn't actually put it in his words in this chapter. But the lesson, I think there are four lessons and the first one sounds like this. It's that Christian unity crosses lines of economy, race, location, and time. The Jerusalem church was poor. The Antioch church was not. But economy doesn't matter. Christian unity crosses lines of economy. The church in Jerusalem was made out of Jews. The church in Antioch and all these other churches were made out of Gentiles, Roman citizens perhaps. But that doesn't matter. Christian unity crosses lines of race. But the church in Jerusalem is so far away, Paul, it might take Paul a year to go from Corinth all the way to Jerusalem, but it doesn't matter. Location doesn't matter because Christian unity crosses location. And even time. Do you realize that most of the people who sacrificed homes and land in Jerusalem at the time of the founding of the church probably don't live there anymore? A lot of them moved away. A persecution started in Jerusalem, and we are told that the Christians who were in Jerusalem at the time of the persecution in Acts chapter 8 dispersed. So the church that is in Jerusalem now isn't really made up of the same people who sacrificed all that they sacrificed, but Paul is still taking a collection for them because Christian unity crosses the lines of time too. It doesn't matter that the thing that happened happened so long ago. We are in unity with them now. Paul says, I'm taking up a collection. And you've got all kinds of reasons why you might oppose it. (laughs) But he's still taking up a collection. And then he gets really practical. He gets really practical. Because he says, I want your money. That brings me to the second blank. Write this down before we look at the next set of verses. He says, Christian unity must require sacrifice, even money. Oh yeah, I'll sacrifice a little bit of my attitude. I'll sacrifice a little bit of my time. And Paul says, no, Christian unity requires real sacrifice, including money. Just think of the sacrifice those first Christians made to get that early church off the ground. If that didn't happen, none of us would know Jesus. Do you realize people have given hundreds of thousands of dollars to make this church happen? Before we even had our first worship gathering, people committed $150,000 to get this thing off the ground. And they had given tens of thousands of dollars by the time we had our first worship gathering so that we could be able to start this church and get it rolling. And since that time, very few of you were around since the beginning and people have given thousands and thousands of dollars, committed thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to this. Christian unity 
does require sacrifice, even money. Take a look at verse 2. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. There are two more lessons I want you to learn from this that I think Paul is trying to communicate to us. Number one, Christian unity must be planned. Christian unity must be planned. Unity isn't the sort of thing that just happens. It's not something that's just accidental. You don't get born into a family and then live your entire life ignoring them or just doing the accidental things. No, families create structure. They create home life. They create traditions. They create ways of interacting. And Christian unity also needs to be planned, needs to be structured, needs to have some of this. And Paul says, when it comes to money especially, you need to plan it. He says, on the first day of every week, I want you to set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income so that when I get there, I don't have to take a new collection. You've been collecting the entire time I've been gone. And some people say, see, this is why you should have an offering every single Sunday. The church should take an offering every single Sunday because Paul says it right here. But no, pay attention. Paul says you're supposed to save it. Paul says you're supposed to set it aside. You're supposed to take this money and you're supposed to set it aside so when your house, there's a pile of cash. Dad, what's that pile of cash there for? Son, that's for the people in Jerusalem. Dad, can I buy a transformer? Son, that's for the people in Jerusalem. And every week that pile grows bigger. Every week that gets bigger because you've set a little bit aside every single week. Now, what's interesting about this is that we tend to think generosity is the sort of thing I do when I encounter a need and feel kind, and so I meet the need. We tend to think of that as generosity, and I want to tell you it's not. What that is, is spontaneity. You walk away from that encounter, you pat yourself on the back, and you're like, man, I just gave $5 to a homeless person. Most people only give one. I'm so good. I feel so good about myself. I think I'll buy myself a $7 latte. See, that's the way we live our lives. And we call that generosity. And what Paul says, no, if you really want to be generous, you've got to do the long haul. You've got to plan something out. You've got to say, I'm going to give a little bit this interval, and then it's going to come out to something huge so that when Paul shows up in a year or two, he's going to come into town, and you're going to have piles of cash. You're going to need a caravan of people to take that all the way to Jerusalem. And you didn't even have to pass the plate. See, that's what Paul's talking about. Christian unity requires planning. You and I and the church, individuals and corporately, we have to plan to do something to build our unity. But beyond that, did you notice what else he said? He said, we're not just going to send the money. We're going to send people. We're going to get some people from Corinth. We're going to get some people from other churches. We're going to send some people. I'm going to write some letters for all the people that I know. And if it seems like it makes a lot of sense, I'm going to go too. And they're all going to accompany me. Now, hang on a second. How many churches is Paul writing this to? He's writing this letter to Corinth, but he says, also do what I told all the churches in Galatia to do. He wrote a book called Galatians, right? A letter called Galatians. Maybe you don't know, but there is no city called Galatia. Galatia was an entire region. 
There were lots of churches in Galatia. And so Paul says, tell, tell your people in Corinth to do what I told all the churches in Galatia to do. And so he's got churches all over the place there. He's also got Antioch. He's also got Ephesus. He's got all these churches. My question to you is if he has all these churches take up all this collection over the time of maybe two years, and then they all send their people, we're talking a huge group of people. You know why? Because Christian unity is personal. It's not just about sending some cash. It's personal. Paul is going to show up in Jerusalem with an entourage of maybe 40 people. Piles of money. And every single one of those people is going to say to the church in Jerusalem, maybe not you, but the people who got this church started are the reason I know Jesus. And I'm here today to say thank you and to bring you what we've collected. Man alive. That right there could have solved the Jerusalem church's poverty problem in one fell swoop. And Paul says, we're going to tackle this. We're going to deal with this. Because Christian unity is personal. In fact, that's the whole rest of the chapter. 5 through 24, all the rest of the verses is Paul just basically talking about how Christian unity is a personal thing. Take a look with me. We're going to just work our way through it, and I'm just going to make a few brief comments as we go. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Paul says, listen, I need to stay in Ephesus. And so if I were to visit you now, it would be a quick visit. I would show up, but I'd have to get back here to Ephesus because something amazing is happening. If you read in the book of Acts about what's going on in Ephesus, you will find that even handkerchiefs that have touched Paul, now heal sick people. Like all kinds of miracles are being done in Ephesus. Ephesus is the location of the greatest miraculous events that happen in the book of Acts. Amazing things are happening in the book of Acts in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is there. He's like, man, I'm in the midst of this really crazy awesome thing and I can't leave. There are lots of strong opposition though. There are a lot of people opposing me, but I can't leave right now because the opportunity is so great and the pressure is so high. We find out what happens is that eventually uh, the pressure in Ephesus reaches a boiling point and they kick Paul out and he has to leave at that point in time. But at the time he's writing this letter, he's like, I can't leave just yet. And so if I come to you now, it will be only brief, but I want to stay for a while. You see, because Christian unity is personal. Paul knows that the church in Corinth has a problem with him. They don't like him very much. Uh, they're a little bit irritated. And this letter he's sending to them is also an irritating kind of letter. He's snarky at some points. He's aggressive at some points. He's telling them things they don't want to hear. And so he knows this letter is going to be kind of a harsh letter. And he knows if he shows up there now and has only a brief visit then he's the guy who shows up with something difficult to say and then runs away. And he doesn't want to do that. He knows his relationship with them is on thin ice. And he says, because it's personal, I want to come with you and stay with you, spend some time with you. 
And so I'm not coming now, but I'm going to come as soon as I can so that I can spend months with you, even the entire winter. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. Why would Timothy have something to fear if he goes and visits Corinth? Oh, gee, maybe Timothy sounds a lot like Paul. (laughs) Maybe Timothy says a lot of the same things that Paul says. Maybe Timothy, by being Paul's right-hand man for so long, sounds and acts a little bit too much like Paul, and maybe they don't like Paul, and so Paul says, listen, don't treat Timothy the way you would treat me. (laughs) He says, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. They sent an entourage of people to Paul with a letter. Paul is sending those people back to Corinth with the letter and he's also sending Timothy because he can't go now, but Timothy can go. And he says, when Timothy shows up, be nice to him. Don't treat him the way you would treat me. Verse 12, now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Pause there for just a moment. They asked for Apollos. We know that because Paul does his standard formula, now about. He says now about every time he's answering one of their questions. Now about Apollos. They had asked for Apollos to come. If it were me, I would have taken that personally. I'm the one who brought you the message of Jesus. I'm the one you should be asking to come back. But no, they're asking for Apollos to come back. He's probably a smarter person. He's probably a better speaker. He's probably more impressive of an individual. And Paul is like, you want Apollos? I would have taken that personally. But you know what Paul does? I I would have been threatened by that. If Apollos goes back to them, then he's going to win more people over to his side of things. And more people are going to like Apollos and fewer people are going to like me. But you know what Paul does? He says, I strongly urged Apollos to go. You know why? Because Paul isn't threatened by Apollos. They're on the same team. They're unified. They're totally in sync with each other. And so Paul says, listen, listen, Apollos, I know they think that you're some special person and that I'm some special person. I know that we're causing some divisions there, but guess what? You should go. They asked for you. You should go. Go ahead. Be everything that you are in their context. In fact, Apollos was in Corinth after Paul left, and he's one of the reasons why the Corinthians are all divided. But Paul still says, listen, go, because you and I are unified. And Paul, it's an amazing thing to me, Apollos says no. He disagrees. He says, I'm not going back there right now. Ephesus is where it's happening. Ephesus is where it's at. We're staying in Ephesus. And so Paul tells Apollos to go. Apollos says, no, I'm not going. That must have been an argument because Paul says, I strongly encouraged him to go. And Apollos said no, but that doesn't change the way Paul feels about Apollos. He's still The guy that Paul is saying, but he'll get there as soon as he can. See, you need to know that Christian unity is personal. And there are going to be some times when you get in an argument with someone. And there are going to be some times when someone likes someone else better than you. And yes, Christianity is personal. And Christian unity is personal. But guess what? We're going to deal with it. Guess what? We're going to be okay with it. 
And guess what? If you offend me personally, I'm not going to take it personal because Christian unity is personal, so I'm going to be personal to you. That's what he says. Even though they want Apollos, I'm still going to just be a kind person here. So look at the next one, verse 13. He says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. That phrase is Paul's end to the letter. His official end to the letter. I've answered all your questions. Now I'm giving you an official end because this is his final challenge. It's a command. Be strong. The rest of it is just personal. Verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And they've devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. This is personal, okay? Check this out. When Paul was in Corinth, we know this. When he was in Corinth, he baptized a guy named Crispus and a guy named Gaius. And we find out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, listen, you shouldn't be following me as the baptizer because I only bap- I didn't baptize any one of you except for Crispus and Gaius. But guess what? We know that Stephanus is with Paul now. So if you remember back in verse, in chapter 1, he said, I only baptized Crispus and Gaius. Oh yes, I also baptized Stephanus in his household, but aside from that, I don't really remember if I baptized anyone else. Do you know how he remembered that he baptized Stephanus? My guess is that Stephanus was standing next to Paul while he was dictating this letter. And so here's Paul and he's saying, listen, I didn't baptize anyone except Crispus and Gaius. And Stephanus is standing right there and he says, Paul, you baptized me. And so then Paul says, oh yes, I baptized the household of Stephanus, but aside from that, I don't really remember. What that means to me is that Stephanus is hanging out with them. It says it right here. He says, I was glad when they came, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. That means here's the guy that Paul baptized. That means here's this guy who is loyal to Paul. That means here's this guy who loves Paul. And he's hearing the church have problems with Paul. He's hearing the church be argumentative against Paul. And he's probably getting upset. And now the people in the church say, listen, we got to send Paul a letter. we got to do something about this. And Stephanus says, I'll go. And there's even this little hint. He supplied what was lacking from you. The church didn't send any money, but Stephanus brought some money. The church didn't send any love, but Stephanus brought some love. Stephanus said, I'll take a letter. I'll go visit him. And then he goes, and he is personal with Paul and showing him whatever support Paul needs. So Paul sends him right back with a letter and he says, respect such people. Respect such people. It's personal to Paul. And then, as the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. Remember, Paul met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. By the way, that's just a standard form of greeting back in the ancient world. We are not supposed to kiss people, you know, biblically. It's not like we're supposed to be going around kissing each other. We can do handshakes. It's entirely fine. Or if you don't like handshakes, a fist bump is just fine too. Or maybe just a good hearty wave. 
I don't know, but at least greet people with something that is friendly and honorable. Okay, then he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. See, it's getting personal. He ends, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Three things Paul gives there at the very end. Three things. He says, if you don't love Jesus, you're cursed. But I hope you experience God's grace. And I want you to know I love you. It's one of the first letters ever in the world to be ended by love, Paul. I'm writing this in my own hand. This is too important for me to let just the scribe write. I'm writing this in my own hand. If you don't love Jesus, you're cursed. But I hope you know God's grace. And I love all of you. The church that doesn't love him doesn't matter. For Paul, Christian unity is personal. And he will love them no matter what. That's the end. That's the end of the letter. That's how he finishes it up. But what I'd like to do for us today is just close out our time in this book by just racing through the big picture of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to highlight for you once again the big points that this letter has been trying to make to us. So here we go. The first lesson is that Christians must have Jesus at the top. Christians should be devoted to Jesus above all things, above all doctrines, above all uh, denominational kinds of things, above all racial kinds of things, above all economic kinds of things, above all other sorts of things that might divide Christians. It's got to be Jesus above all. Look at what Paul says. I'm going to show you some verses of how he described this. He said, Therefore I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. What he says is, there are going to be people who say, Jesus is cursed. He was just a man who was hung on a cross and killed. He's just a man who was crucified. He's just a man that God judged like any other man. He's just a guy who died. Jesus was just cursed like any other person, and that's why he died the way he died. And then there are going to be other people people who say, no, Jesus is God who came to earth, who died for our sins, who was raised back to life again. He is Lord. He says there's only two ways of viewing Jesus. Jesus was a man who died or he is the Lord who rose. That's the only way to identify who he is. And if you believe he's the Lord who rose, God came flesh, died for your sins, rose back to life again. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, then you have the spirit of God. You're in the family. If you don't believe that about Jesus, If you just think he's a guy who died, then you don't have the Spirit of God. You're not in the family. Christian unity is about Jesus above all. Number two, look at this next verse. He says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, All I ever wanted to talk about was Jesus and how his death changes your life. Take a look at this next one. He says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. Christians must be about Jesus above all. Christians must be devoted to Jesus above all. Then number two, the next major point from this letter is that Christians should be united in sacrificial love. Christians should be united in sacrificial love. Let's take a look at what Paul says here. 
in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, he says, the very fact you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? He says, when someone treats you poorly, you've got a choice. Get them back or let it go. Simple. You've got a choice. Which one builds unity? Getting them back or letting it go? Why not, for the sake of Christian unity, rather be wronged? Make that personal sacrifice. Look at this next one. It says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. There's a cultural thing back in their day that if you ate a particular kind of meat, someone might perceive that as you worshiping an idol. And so Paul says, listen, if that's a danger in whatever context I'm in, I'll rather eat meat never It's just food. It doesn't matter. I will sacrifice my personal liberty for the sake of the unity because I don't want to cause any other person to stumble. Take a look at what he says next. He says, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. See, here's Paul's point. He says, there are only two things that matter when you're talking about whether or not you live out your liberty or whether you limit your liberty. Two things that matter. Does it build up the church? Does it welcome the unbeliever? That's it. Does it build up the church? Does it welcome the unbeliever? If it welcomes the unbeliever, but it doesn't tear down the church, it just leaves it right here, that's fine. If it builds up the church and it doesn't push away the unbeliever, that's fine. But best when you can do both. I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to build up the church and welcome the unbeliever. That's what Paul is saying here. Because I'm going to make personal sacrifices for the sake of the unity of God's church. Look at this next verse. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Do the things you do as a unity. And then look at this next one. He says, now you're the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You've got a part to play, and 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 we've all got our own part to play because we're part of this body. I'm going to sacrifice to love the other members of Christ's body. That's Christian unity. Christians should be devoted to that. Let's skip the next couple of verses and go to the next blank. Christians should also be devoted to holiness. Christians should also be devoted to holiness. So Jesus above all, unity and sacrificial love, Christians should be devoted to holiness. Paul writes a lot of stuff in here. Let's just blink through these verses as we go through them. It says this, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Paul says, yeah, unity is a great thing. But don't pretend there's a layer of unity where there isn't authentic Christianity. Because authentically Christian people, they don't live like that. He's claiming to be a brother or sister, but he's living in sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or slander or drunkenness or swindling people. He's claiming to be a Christian, but he's clearly not. Don't even associate with such people. Unity's great. Make your own personal liberty sacrifices for the sake of unity. But holiness is important too. He echoes this again in the next verse where he talks about wrongdoers not inheriting the kingdom of God. But at the bottom there he says, and that's what some of you were. 
Go to the next slide. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You see, God sacrificed his son that you might come to know him and have a relationship with him. And so here it is. He says, listen, you were just as bad as anyone else, but God makes you holy because he bought you. So live in that holiness. A couple other verses here that illustrate the same point. We'll just kind of work through and look at the next one. He's talking about sexual immorality and he says, because it's happening, you should be married. Sex is for the marriage bubble. Inside the marriage bubble, you can express it. Outside the marriage bubble, it shouldn't exist. Go on to the next one. He says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. It's one thing to be morally good. It's another thing to be religiously good. There's some things in this world that are not of God, but people pretend they're of God. Avoid those things too. So here you go. He was talking about putting Jesus first. He's talking about living in unity through sacrificial love. And he's talking about holiness. But there are two final ideas that Paul mentions in the book that are summary statements of all the rest of it. And I'll just mention these to you. He says, worship should be spirit-filled, but orderly, edifying, and considerate of unbelievers. We try to live that out here. We try to do everything we do orderly, structured on Sunday, spirit-filled as much as we possibly can. We express the the life of the Spirit, especially in our community groups. Uh, However God leads that group, that's for that group to to have that. And there are a couple verses where Paul would address relationships between men and women. He'd address relationships between the efforts of the spiritual gifts, whether speaking in tongues or prophecy, and we've been through those. But skip ahead to the next blank, fill this one in. He also says, never forget the implications of the resurrection. That's what we talked about last week. You see, if Jesus was raised and the promise of your resurrection exists, then everything you do in this life matters. If Jesus was not raised, then nothing matters. With the resurrection, everything matters. Without the resurrection, nothing matters. So let's put this all together in one final statement. This is my summary of the teaching of the book of 1 Corinthians. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God's people live in faithful, loving, holy, spirit-filled unity with a heart for unbelievers and a hope for the coming kingdom. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God's people live in faithful, loving, holy, spirit-filled unity with a heart for unbelievers and a hope for the coming kingdom. I want to ask you, How are you doing at that? Listen, it depends on what day of the week you catch me, but any one of those statements can be a weak point in my life. Am I faithful? Sure, sometimes. Am I loving? Yeah, I can be. Holy? Spirit-filled? How well am I doing at living in unity? Is my unity a personal thing or is it just sort of I'm part of a system? Do I have a heart for unbelievers? Do I have a hope for the coming kingdom? Catch me on the wrong day and any one of these can be weak. And I imagine you are the same way. 
And you could evaluate yourself on these things. Am I living the way a Christian should live? And if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to say, not all the time. I'm working at it. And I, as the pastor of the church, could stand up here and point out all of your flaws and all of your faults. And I could say, you got to change this thing. And you got to be more unified in this way. And you need to be more holy. And you need to be more loving. And you need to be whatever it is. And we need to have a better heart for the unbelievers. And we need to have a better hope in the coming kingdom. And I could do that. But guess what? That's not the answer. Paul tells the people how they are supposed to live. But he never told them that living that way was the answer. The answer is already here. It's because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Listen, if you find yourself ever weak in any of the things 1 Corinthians talks about, if you ever find yourself weak in holiness, weak in love, weak in faithfulness, weak in unity, if you ever find yourself weak in trying to love the unbelievers, if you ever find yourself weak in having a hope for the coming kingdom, here is the answer. Stop worrying about the things you're weak in and start paying attention to the things where Jesus is strong. Come back to the cross and the empty tomb. That's the foundation. That's why Paul could say, I resolve to know nothing with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Early on in the book, he says it's about Jesus and his cross. And then in chapter 15, he says, for I gave you what I knew as first of first importance, that Christ rose from the dead. The beginning of the book and the end of the book, the cross and the empty tomb. You might feel weak in any of these areas, and I encourage you to find your strength where Jesus has proven strong, in his cross and in his empty tomb. We're going to end our time together today with a reflection on that exact thing. Today, we're going to sing the song, Lead Me to the Cross. And next Sunday, we are going to celebrate the empty tomb. And so join with me in a moment of reflection to say, Jesus, it's not about me and the list. It's about you and all you've done. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you. And we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always, we want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith wherever you are. Life is a journey, and no one should ever walk alone.